1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. NSA gives Microsoft a heads-up about a Windows vulnerability, and CISA is right behind them with instructions for federal civilian agencies and advice for everyone else norway's consumer council finds that dating apps are out of control with the way they share data ransomware goes all in for doxing the u.s pushes the uk on huawei as washington prepares further restrictions on the chinese companies and think twice before you book that altcoin conference in pyongyang Back at our CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, January 15th, 2020. It's good to be home. Microsoft's fix for Windows crypto API issued yesterday with credit to the National Security Agency for telling Microsoft about the vulnerability prompted an emergency directive from the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Directorate, that's CISA, CISA. Federal agencies are expected to patch promptly in accordance with Emergency Directive 20-02, so the U.S. government is clearly putting its money where its disclosures are. As CISA blogged yesterday morning, quote, The most important thing you can do for your cybersecurity is to update your software, and if you're a Windows user, today is your day. End quote. CISA looks after, roughly speaking, the .gov domain, with responsibility for federal agencies other than the Department of Defense, which has the .mil domain, and certain national security systems. Affected agencies have 10 days to apply the patch, and the statutory boilerplate surrounding the emergency directive should be sufficiently intimidating to spur even the most laggard agency CIO into action. CISA says that it hopes state and local governments, private sector organizations, and the general public will also patch quickly, although, of course, it has no jurisdiction over them. The Washington Post sees NSA's disclosure as representing a departure in policy, and indeed the agency's cybersecurity directorate head, Ann Newberger, did say that it was a change in approach. A number of observers have commented to the effect that NSA was now on its best behavior, playing nice by disclosing bugs rather than weaponizing them. But the real change in approach was NSA's decision to allow its disclosure to be made public. It has disclosed vulnerabilities before, but there's a new openness to its process. CISA was ready with its own warnings and directions on the vulnerabilities patched yesterday, which suggests that the cross-agency coordination between NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate and their counterparts in the Department of Homeland Security is functioning in this early test case. Both organizations are young— CISA having been established on November 16, 2018, and NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate at the beginning of this past October, so the way cooperation between them evolves will be worth watching. The Norwegian Consumer Council determined that several dating apps are collecting users' personal data and sharing them with various advertising networks. The Telegraph says the dating apps include Tinder, Grindr and OkCupid, among the advertising outfits are Google, Facebook, and Twitter. The Norwegian Consumer Council is filing formal complaints against Grindr and five companies with whom the dating app was oversharing. Twitter's Mopub, AT&T's app Nexus, OpenX, Ad Colony, and Smoto. The action is being taken under the European General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which prohibits collection of personal data without the affected person's explicit consent. Reports suggest that the data collected includes such sensitive categories as sexual preference and ethnicity, and that Grindr, at least, was also sharing geolocation, the better for its commercial partners to serve up advertising, piping hot. The companies named in the Consumer Council's action appear to represent the more egregious data abusers, but the council is not at all measured in the way it characterizes the problem. It's out of control, they say and given the companies involved, it seems a lead pipe cinch that data are flowing through some unanticipated and probably little-tracked advertising channels. Ransomware operators are increasingly showing a disposition to turn to doxing as an incentive to get victims to pony up. If data are simply encrypted, then well-prepared victims who've backed their files up securely in places inaccessible to the attackers can, at some relatively small trouble and expense, restore their systems, and plug the holes that let the attackers in. And then, of course, they can cheerfully thumb their nose at the extortionist. Things are more complicated when the attackers take the trouble to steal data before they encrypt it, and that's recently become the norm in this corner of the underworld. The gang behind Nemtie Ransomware intends, according to Bleeping Computer, to follow the example of Maze and Sodinokibi by setting up a site on which it can dump files stolen from victims who are laggard in paying the ransom. It's also interesting to see the criminal-to-criminal market behaving in ways that mimic legitimate markets. Nemti's basically put out a launch announcement. We checked in with the Chertoff Group's Chris Duval for his insights on the state of ransomware.
0: We're thinking 2020 is going to be, um, you know, another banner year for ransomware, you know, potentially even worse than, than previous for a couple of different reasons. The bad guys are discovering that it's a lot easier just to fire and forget. You can put in a string of IP address ranges to look for vulnerabilities. Um, you can do automated sort of phishing tests. And so being able to do that kind of high output um, automation is just going to increase the number of potential vulnerabilities they discover and then can be exploited is one factor. The other factor is um, while there's been improvements in kind of not only the attention paid to ransomware due to, you know, media reporting and, and just general, you know, folks trying to lock down better security procedures uh, it's making the sort of the adversary more wary. And so almost more desperate. So, you know, those that may see this sort of lucrative stream potentially drying up are going to try even harder to sort of find, you know, those, those vulnerabilities and those big fish and, and exploit them.
1: In the conversations that you're having, do you feel as though the word is getting out that, that people are are starting to implement things like multi-factor authentication and, and doing their backups? Are you you're getting that feedback from
0: them that that message is reaching them? It is. It is. I mean, but it's a, you know, as you know, it's a constant challenge. As the saying goes, the bad guys only have to get it right once. The good guys have to get it right every time. And so mm-hmm. being able to lock down both any potential vulnerabilities across your entire kind of landscape making sure that your employees are knowledgeable about what to look for and what not to look for and what links to click on and not to click on. All of those things are, are it's, a, it's a constant sort of exponential problem depending on how large your organization is.
1: How about in the boardroom? Are, are those folks at those levels in organizations,
0: uh, what's their relationship to this? Or are they seeing this as the, the hazard that perhaps it is? That's a great question. I think that is one of the biggest improvements that we've seen, particularly in 2019, is you know end of 18, into of 19. Um, and we're hoping we'll continue into 2020, which is the attention that the board is playing to security and to cybersecurity. And so there's no longer, or at least it, it seems to be less so, a conversation about, um, okay, do we have things locked down? And if not, what new tool do you need? But really more of an honest conversation with the chief information security officer about What types of breaches or, you know, what types of attempts of breaches have we seen? You know, what have you been doing about them? What's our return on investment? And so that conversation at the board level appears to be increasing, which is very encouraging.
1: what about the human side of this? I'm thinking of security awareness training in organizations getting beyond the necessary technical elements that that an organization should have, but also helping uh, your employees to recognize things like phishing campaigns.
0: It's crucial. I mean, it's one of those things that, any organization has to have the, you know, if you just think about it mathematically, if you have a 2000 person organization um, and if you have a 20% click rate, I mean, all that's, that's, you know, 200 uh, folks that have clicked on a potentially malicious link that may have uh, access to the system. So being able to reduce uh, or being able to educate your workforce to sort of recognize when something seems fishy um, and to notify is, is, Um, Key And and employees are the first line of defense. If you don't have that, then most of the other security procedures you're going to take are just kind of, um, you know, putting your fingers in the holes in the dam.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because uh, simultaneous to that, the availability of sophisticated tools for perhaps less sophisticated users, and then you put that up against... Um, the idea that we've heard a lot about, that the the, the targeting has grown much more sophisticated, that uh, there are a lot of actors out there who are doing their homework when it comes to ransomware that are, particularly with things like phishing campaigns, you know, they it's not so much of a, a shotgun sort of spray-and-pray approach, perhaps, as it was in the past. Does, it, does that align with what you're seeing? Absolutely.
0: No, it, there probably isn't a day that doesn't go by where we don't... Um, in our cyber practice area, get together and sort of have printed out, you know, an an email that we receive. that looks genuine, like from our CEO, Chad Sweet, or from the secretary. So the sophistication um, and the targeting is really, uh, really increased over the last year in particular.
1: That's Chris Duvall from the Chertoff Group. As the U.K. nears a decision on Huawei and its potential role in the nation's 5G, The Guardian reports that Her Majesty's government has already taken into account the most recent U.S. revelations – and that it seems likely to conclude that any risk associated with Huawei is manageable. The U.S. has warned that too much Huawei in the infrastructure could force the American services to constrain the way they share intelligence with their British counterparts. But the head of MI5, Andrew Parker, has told the Financial Times that he thinks the special relationship is too long-standing, too close, and too special for matters to go that far. That said, there's no denying that the U.S. has been both assertive and consistent on the risks posed by Huawei. Back on this side of the Atlantic, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission seems ready to expand its ban on both Huawei and ZTE gear, J.D. Supra says. That's a demand-side measure, and according to CNBC, the U.S. Commerce Department is considering stronger supply-side measures against the Chinese firms – with tighter export controls against them under consideration. Those controls would have an impact on third countries as well. We've just returned from a trip to a conference in Seattle, and like many of you, we're now looking ahead to a trip to San Francisco, since the RSA conference is just around the corner. But let's say you, friend, are interested in mixing it up. You've heard about those cryptocurrencies, sister, and those blockchains, brother. And you're ready to learn from the best and swap some ideas with other movers and shakers in the fast-moving world of altcoins and the wallets they flow through. Well, ever been to Pyongyang? Neither have we, but the 2020 Pyongyang Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Conference will meet at the SciTech Complex between February 22nd and 29th, ending on Leap Day, and how often can that happen? We know, every four years, but how can you pass this one up? The answer to that would be yes, 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 indeed. No matter how much you've always wanted to party with the Lazarus Group, do pass this one up. But don't just take our word for it. Listen to the UN's own experts, who tell Reuters that attending the conference would constitute a violation of international sanctions the civilized world has imposed on the DPRK. There are plenty of other things to do in late February. You could stay home and watch TV, for example. The XFL will be playing, and that weekend you could watch the Los Angeles Wildcats take on the New York Guardians, or see the St. Louis Battlehawks go toe-to-toe with the Seattle Dragons. Sure, it's not that Super Bowl thing we hear about, which, by the way, we completely lost interest in around 11 p.m. Eastern time this past Saturday. But you can take this to the bank. It'll be better than a visit to the gift shop at the Victorious Fatherland Liberation War Museum. And it'll be legal, too. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, We wanted to touch today on something that you all are looking into. This has to do with some AutoCAD files and some vulnerabilities that have been popping up there. What do you have to share with us today?
2: Yeah, so the bad guys, uh, they're always getting creative in finding new document types to hide malware, typically to bypass filters and your mail servers. So you have filters that inspect, for example, Word documents uh, to make sure there are no macros in them and such. But turns out that AutoCAD files, uh, these are usually using a .dwg extension. Well, they're actually the same OLE standard files as Microsoft Office documents. And they can contain pretty much the same Visual Basic for Application macros that you find in Word and Excel. So we have seen a couple of these AutoCAD files being used to attack users. And what's a little bit tricky here is first of all you know autocad is not a, a commonly installed desktop application uh, so your your targets are a lot more sparse here but it's usually people in your company that work sort of on your latest greatest designs on Uh, proprietary data uh, that you're trying to protect so it's certainly a very important target and i think that's uh, where these autocad files are really becoming an issue you may say hey i can just filter for autocad files Uh, yes you can do that and definitely that's something that you should do Mm. it's also a little bit different than you may have heard occasionally about like you know Uh, executable code being added to images and such, that's Mm -hmm. usually just done uh, to infiltrate the code into the organization. You still need some special, usually malicious software to parse uh, this code out of these images with AutoCAD files. Well, if you have AutoCAD already installed, no real malware needed other than this malicious AutoCAD document.
1: Now, in terms of, of getting these AutoCAD files to the folks who would then launch them, is is this just straightforward kind of phishing sorts of things?
2: Yep. Uh, what we have seen so far is pretty much, uh, you know, spare phishing emails. Uh, someone receives uh, an email with an attachment telling them, hey, this is new design I'm working on or whatever. Uh, so uh, this is sort of how they usually appear uh, to be distributed. Of course, they could also arrive as a link to a website. Maybe if someone sort of finds some open repository of AutoCAD drawings, like of parts and such, they could of course use them. Haven't seen that part yet, uh, but this would be, it's it's a little bit similar to, um, from a developer's point of view, when you're including uh, libraries and such, a lot of AutoCAD uh, users are using part libraries and such uh, that, of course, may also include these malicious uh, macros.
1: And I suppose there's an educational component to this as well. If you've got uh, folks on on your staff that are using AutoCAD, put the word out that uh, perhaps disabling macros or at the very least being on the lookout for this sort of thing.
2: Certainly, that's a real good idea, you know, not actually sure if you can disable macros uh, like you can do in vert with AutoCAD, but definitely be on the lookout for it and you know make sure on your mail servers in your web proxies and such that you don't forget to inspect those AutoCAD documents in general, whenever you receive uh, an attachment with an odd extension, it's probably a good idea to quarantine them and you know look at it later from a security point of view yeah. All right. Well,
1: Johannes Ulrich, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security,